Well, let me just say it. Driving brings out the worst in me. I arrived at the intersection ahead of the guy to my left. When I stopped, he rolled through the light. And you know what? He floored it. He zipped right in front of me. And let me just tell you, I was ticked. I felt my heart beating in my chest. My blood pressure was rising. And I reflected in that instant moment, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? Now, one of the ironies is at that intersection, I was on my way to church to give a sermon. And it reminded me, again, of how far I have to go in my spiritual life. Because at that instant moment at that intersection, my inner world was displayed before me. And transparently, it wasn't pretty. I have a long ways to go on my character formation and my spiritual formation. And I'm reminded of that often. Often in my spiritual life, it feels like I'm taking, you know, one step forward and two steps back. My spiritual formation and change and growth often is insufferably slow and discouraging. And I have a hunch that I'm not alone in that experience. Now, wherever you are in your spiritual journey, whether you are new to faith, whether you're checking out faith, whether you've been a Christian a long time, I think we all can resonate with that experience, that spiritual formation and change is really hard and really slow. I think all of us struggle with this essence of change and how we change and our lack of Christ-likeness. And it feels elusive often. And as a church family, we are exploring this very real thing in a series we are entitling, We Can Change. But the question I have for us, is lasting change really possible? Can we really change? And if so, how can we change? And I want to suggest to all of us is that true change will require all that we are. One of the reasons that change is so difficult that we often miss, so elusive in our experience, is that we all live into a cultural distortion. For centuries, the Western culture has had this distortion that all of us have bought into. It overemphasizes certain aspects of our lives, particularly of our brains, and underemphasizes others. And this has led to an impoverished view of change, and it emphasizes the rational at the expense of the relational. Now, many of us have been taught that as individuals, if we just think rightly, right, if, we, if we just possess the right biblical information, if we agree to the right, most sound doctrinal formulations, then we as individuals will experience transformation like that. We will take on the character of Christ and that we will grow to spiritual maturity. Now, let me say clearly, while having sound doctrine is essential, more is involved in spiritual formation and transformation than that. Our greater understanding now of neuroscience, of how God uniquely designed our brain, is helping us to become more aware of how, of how our Western culture has distorted our understanding of change. One of the most important books, I think, in the early 21st century was a book written in 2009 by Oxford professor and psychiatrist Ian McGilchrist. He wrote this watershed book, and it's entitled The Master and His Emissary, and the subtitle cues us in, The Divided Brain and the Making of the Western World. It is a brilliant book exposing how Western cultural distortion has great implications for our lives and change. Ian McGilchrist points out that the left and right hemispheres of our brains, we have two hemispheres, have differing insights, values, and priorities. 
Each hemisphere has a distinct take on the world. Most strikingly, the right hemisphere sees itself as immediate, connected to the world. The left hemisphere stands aloof from it. Now, this affects our understanding, not just of language and reason, music and time, but all of our life, all living things, our bodies, ourselves, and the world in which we live. And McGillchrist helps us to understand and to see that in our Western culture, the left hemisphere of our brains have been so overemphasized that the right hemisphere of our brains have been underemphasized and underutilized with the far-reaching consequences in all dimensions. Now listen to what he writes. We need both, that is brain hemispheres, but the left hemisphere has become so far dominant that we're in danger of forgetting everything that makes us human. Think about that for a moment. Neuroscience is not only helping us understand in unique ways how God has designed us, but also how we change as human beings and how spiritual formation takes place in our life. Now, this insight may be new to many of us. Maybe you've studied this. But for most of us, it's a shift, a big shift in our perspective. But it has always been right in front of our eyes. We have just not seen it. And because of our distorted cultural framework, many of us have, may have missed it. Now, understand that formation is primarily a function of right brain hemisphere but the distorted Western cultural framework has led to an increasing number of contemporary Christian thinkers and scholars to point what they call to a, I like this, a deficient half-brain faith. Sounds terrible, doesn't it? By half-brain faith, they mean that a brain that overemphasizes the left hemisphere. And the way to think of this is simply this way, and it's more complex than this, but it helps you grasp it. Left brain, simply think logic, left logic. Right brain, think relational. Think relational. Both hemispheres are really important. Let me emphasize that. But we must employ both in how God designed us to function. But an important correction is needed in our lives. Now, when we carefully examine the scriptures, what is amazing is we see the biblical writers embrace not a half-brain faith, uh-uh, but a full-brain faith. Not one reduced or distorted by left-brain uh, left dominance. Now, the biblical writers understood that spiritual formation and transformation is both rational and relational. Both rational and relational. They understood that change, lasting change, involves all of us, including all of our brain. Now, if you have a Bible handy, turn with me to St. Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 12. As we enter Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 12 plays a very pivotal role in the book. And declaring the gospel is not just a rational belief we acknowledge or a set of doctrines we affirm, but also, notice, a deeply lived relational reality, one we bodily experience. So Paul urges us to embrace an embodied full-brain faith, and it reveals to us three truths regarding how we change, how our transformation into greater Christ-likeness of character and spiritual maturity merges. The matter of change involves three ideas. Our new identity, our physicality, or our bodies, and our community. So remember this as we walk through this. First of all, it's identity, then physicality, and then community. Let's look first at our new identity. It matters. Look with me at verse 1. Now Paul writes, I appeal to you therefore, brothers and sisters, that's the word, 
by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now here in verse one, and again in verse two, Paul is using the plural you. It's very emphatic in the Greek language. Now for some of our Southern friends, you know, he is saying not just y'all, but all y'all, okay? So it's the whole. He's not addressing individuals primarily. He's addressing the new community. And Paul is reminding them that in the gospel, they are not merely new creations in Christ as individuals, as glorious as that is. They are also part of a glorious new creation community. Paul wants us as readers to grasp something, that the gospel makes us not just new persons, but also new people. Paul is in line step with Peter. And the apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2, listen to how he describes the gospel transformation. He says, once you are not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not, notice the word, had received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So when we embrace the gospel, we are not only given a new identity in Christ as individual followers of Jesus, but Paul tells us, and Peter affirms, we are also given a new group identity as members of a new creation family. This family identity is reinforced by Paul here in verse 1 of Romans 12 in several ways. One, you'll notice the brothers and sisters language, as well as this very important phrase we must not skip over fast. It is the mercies of God. Now, at the heart of this word, mercy, involves not just compassion or empathy. It does that. But it is embedded in an idea of familial love or family. Now, last week, Pastor Andrew reminded us of this very important truth, that Paul's appeal for transformation here in Romans 12 begins with God's merciful love toward us, that we only change by experiencing the security and relational knowledge of being deeply known and deeply loved. Now, we learned, again, last week, that this rich word, this rich Greek word, has a brilliant Hebrew Old Testament backdrop, this word mercy. This word mercy captures several Hebrew words in the Old Testament, but especially at its center is the Hebrew word rachamim, which comes from rachem, which means the womb. So you get the idea. This word is used to describe familial love, particularly the unique love of family members, and it describes God's tender, yes, feminine, motherly love. It is a love that is unbreakable in the securest of attachment bonds. Now, I had an amazing mom. Uh, and she is with the Lord now. But I often reflect of the special love I experience. I've often said, as her son, I've never experienced this kind of love in life. A mother's love for a child is unique. My mother's love was unique for me. It was cemented in a secure attachment, a bond. And let's just say, as a kid, and maybe as an adult, I made a lot of mistakes. And I'm sure I wasn't always lovable to her but I never ever doubted for one minute that my mom's love for me would ever waver. My mom's attachment love profoundly shaped my developing brain as I now know and formed me for all of life. Being her son, I was secure, I was safe, I belonged, I was family. This is the picture on a human dimension that Paul is giving to us here in Romans 12. Paul is saying, you are now part of a new family. You are safe, secure, you belong. You have a new individual identity. You have a group identity. You are part of a new family. 
And that means you have a new identity. You can change. You can be transformed because you belong, because you are secure, because you are safe in a familial love with God and his people. We must grasp that it is not merely right belief, now think left brain, but familial love or attachment, think right brain, that profoundly transforms us and leads to lasting change. It is not merely rational, wise choices, yes, that matters, but also intimate, loving relationships that change us profoundly. We are not changed merely by what we believe, but by who and what we love, and by having a new identity of experiencing the reality of being part of a new family. Now, Jesus emphasizes, and we often miss this, on the night before his crucifixion, he gathers his apprentices, his disciples around him, and he gives us language that is both metaphorical and propositional. Jesus' gentle words to his disciples were revolutionary in his time, but more than that, they were life-giving to their souls. In John chapter 15, I encourage you to read it carefully this week, but in verse 15, following this attachment metaphor of the vine and branches, if you've read the Gospel of John, Jesus says something so profound, and he says this, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from the Father, I have made known to you. Now, when we hear the word friend in English, in our cultural context, it's really weak. We may think of a casual acquaintance, someone we love to hang around. It's a good thing, right? In our recreational activities at school, at work, or with a neighbor, or someone we friend on Facebook. But Jesus' idea of friend is vastly different. In Jesus' Middle Eastern Semitic culture, a friend was someone on the same footing as a family member. The book of Proverbs captures this brilliantly in Proverbs 18.24, where we hear that there is a friend who sticks closer than, hear me, closer than a brother. Jesus is saying to his disciples, his emerging church community, you now have a group identity. You are now family to me. A family modeled, get this, after my unique Trinitarian reality with my father. Now, there's a new book out that is excellent called The Other Half of the Church. Jim Wilder and Michael Hendricks bring together not only a robust biblical theology, but they bring the latest neuroscience research. And they describe increasingly how the scriptures and neuroscience converge together to show us how group identity works to form our character and our virtue in Christ-like formation. Here's what they say. Listen carefully. Around age 12... The brain undergoes a structural change that balances individual identity with group identity. They write, we are formed by our strongest attachments and shared identity of the community. And listen to what they say. Our brains, your brain, my brain, are wired this way. Now, so often when we come to Romans chapter 12, the first verses, we read it through our sort of Western, left-dominant, individualistic grid, which blinds us to Paul's emphasis on right-brain relational connection and identity and loving attachment. If we carefully read the entirety of Romans chapter 12, which we ought to, that follows it, we see that the primary emphasis of transformation, of change, is not mere individual belief and wise choices, but our group identity of belonging fueled by the attachment, relational love, in the context of spirit-filled 
joy-filled community. Like in all biblical interpretation, context matters. You and I cannot change all on our own. We were never designed to. Change requires us to embrace a new identity within a spiritual community. Our identity matters. But notice where Paul also goes. Secondly, our physicality matters. Our physical bodies matter. Because true change requires all of who we are. Now notice the emphasis on our bodies. Paul's emphasis on our physicality, both in verse 1 here, as well in verse 2, jumps out at us if we see it. Notice two phrases. Present your bodies, verse 1, and verse 2, the renewal of your mind. Let's press into that just a moment. In verse 1, Paul emphasizes the totality of our physical bodies that are made fully available to God's manifest, loving presence as vessels of worship, all of life. And the psalmist reminds us of our physicality that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. An important and wonderful part of your body and mine is our amazing brain, our whole brain, both left and right hemispheres. Now, Ian McGilchrist gives us this mind-blowing observation. I want you to think about this for a moment. Reflect on it. This blows me away. He writes, Research tells us that although the brain is extraordinarily densely connected within itself, it is now estimated that there are more connections within the human brain than there are particles in the known universe. More connections in your brain and mine than particles in the universe. No wonder when we come to verse 2 that Paul emphasizes the mind. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The challenge is, in our Western cultural way, when we hear the word mind, most often we think exclusively of rational thought processes, right, of the left brain hemisphere. Now, while that is part of this, right, Paul has more in mind about the mind here. The Greek word nous is translated mind. And we know from good research that it means, in one of our greatest Greek dictionaries, quote, the sum total of the whole mental and moral state of being. That's a lot. But it describes the comprehensive nature of brain and mind. In other words, we should read Paul's words regarding change, and this is the big idea here, of formation and transformation in a much more comprehensive way than merely just left-brain rational thought. In other words, the renewing of our mind that Paul calls us to includes the right brain in the very moment experiences of relational love, of knowing and being known. Now hear me carefully. We not only discern the will of God, that's where Paul goes in verse 2, through right thinking, of course, but we indwell the will of God through bodily living, living the good, true, and beautiful life that Paul alludes to in the end of verse 2, now available to us in God's already not fully yet kingdom. We also know that biblical writers like Paul emphasize the presenting of our whole bodies, yes, our whole bodies, as living sacrifices which involve bodily activities that deepen our attachment to God and change us. Jesus himself modeled spiritual disciplines, and as his apprentice, we are called to embrace his practices. They are a vital part of spiritual formation. In a sense, spiritual disciplines are change agents. I love how Dallas Willard defines them. Dallas says that spiritual disciplines are activities we engage in in our power. They're physical activities 
to accomplish what we cannot do or become by direct effort. Now hear me carefully. Change does not come merely through trying harder, but training better. In other words, we not only need to cognitively grasp the precepts of Jesus, but also also bodily indwell the practices of Jesus. Now here's the point. These physical, bodily, spiritual disciplines, such as solitude, study, fasting, prayer, service, and there are more, find their full transformational effects in the context of attachment love within a joyful, spirit-filled, spiritual community. In other words, we need to understand Paul's saying our physical bodies matter in this matter of change. And we will see this many times in the New Testament. For one example, the Apostle Paul, in writing to the local church at Corinth, addressed the very strong importance of our bodies as they relate to a transformed sexual ethic. Paul urges these followers in Corinth of Jesus to embrace sexual purity. And he reminds the Corinthians that in Christ, their bodies, yes, are temples of the Holy Spirit. And let's not forget that Jesus, our Lord and Savior, took on human flesh. And after his crucifixion and glorious resurrection, he demonstrated his physical resurrected body. The good news of the gospel is our physical bodies will one day be resurrected without sin, without corruption and death. Amen? And in this matter of change, our new identity matters. And Paul says our physical bodies matter. And lastly, Paul will emphasize our spiritual community matters. Now, as we continue to examine Romans 12, in our message series next week, we will focus much more on this. So do not miss this important message next week. But let me just say a quick word as kind of an appetizer of what is to come. The primacy of joy-filled attachment love within spiritual community is vital for our transformation. This will become Paul's more explicit focus in the entirety of Romans chapter 12, which we're going to unpack. Being filled with the Spirit is not merely just an individual reality, but it is a spiritual community reality. The biblical writers like Paul will not speak merely of the Spirit's work in us, but also among us. It is in a spiritual community where we are transformed, where we know and are known, where we are loved and love. Not only are our beliefs within a spiritual community forged, but our love is formed. We are not on our own, nor do we change all on our own. Yes, we can change, but this will involve, Paul says, a new identity. It will involve our physical bodies, and yes, our spiritual community. And it will involve a full-brained faith. So how do we begin to apply this transformational process? Let me just suggest very briefly how to embrace a more full-brained faith. Let me suggest for your consideration this week, Three full-brained embodied practices. In other words, how do you have a stronger right-brain relational engagement in your transformation? Think community, think remembrance, and think gratitude. Let me highlight those very briefly. The discipline of community we'll focus more on next week. But let me just say that in this pandemic of COVID-19, we need to find creative ways to connect to each other. Liz and I had a lovely dinner with two other couples who are part of Christ and we didn't know very well. And we had the pleasure to get to know them. And in that small context, we found a sense of deep spiritual community. Secondly, the discipline of remembrance. Now, in the morning, I'm going to suggest, start your day, practice this, by remembering how Christ delights in you. 
The prophet Jeremiah writes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. So will you thank him each morning for his love and ask the Lord, how do you want to love me today? And in the evening, pause before going to bed and ask, how is Christ's love more deeply experienced in me today? The third discipline is the discipline of gratitude. How important this is. 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. So can I suggest a discipline for you? Take five minutes and express gratitude. Maybe write it in a journal. Thank God for your new identity in Christ, his love for you, your spiritual community, the physical world around you, the blessing of relationships, the gifts God has given you. And maybe, just maybe this week, practice the discipline of gratitude by writing a note of appreciation to a person in your life who has encouraged you in seeking to know God more fully. Yes, change can be slow. It can be slow in my life and your life. It can be a struggle. It can be elusive. But let me encourage you, we can change. We can be formed into greater Christ-likeness and virtue. But that change is not only a work of divine grace. It will involve all of you. Your whole body, your full brain, lived out in the context of a loving spiritual community called the local church. So join me. Let's grow and change together.